take a network break, hop in, buckle up, and help yourself to a virtual donut as we careen through this week's tech news. We're going to discuss a new anti-ransomware service from Rubrik, a serious vulnerability from F5, financial results for Cisco and Palo Alto Networks, and more. We're sponsored today. Kareen. 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 Kareen, you like that? <laughs> I like that. That's great. Been digging in my thesaurus. Words. Yes. Yeah, you really have. That's cool. I like <laughs> oh, it. Thanks. What a nice way to start. <laughs> That's it. Fancy words. Fancy words. All in for that. There we go. Yeah. All right. I've just helped your vocabulary for the day. Uh, We're sponsored by Linode. You can cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines, develop, deploy, and scale your applications faster and easier. Network Break listeners can get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit. You can find all the details at linode.com slash networkbreak. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. And then stick around for a Tech Bytes conversation on navigating cloud deployments with VMware partner SoftChoice, including how SoftChoice helped a Major League Baseball team use hybrid cloud to improve the Impark fan experience. All right, let's jump into the news. Uh, storage company Rubrik, they've announced a new threat containment offering meant to help companies safely recover from a ransomware attack without accidentally reintroducing the malware from a compromised file that's been backed up. It's kind of interesting to think that ransomware has gotten to the point where we're actually building storage solutions that and companies are profiting off the fact that faulty products are now actually a business at multiple levels, isn't it? Well, I guess one person's problem is another person's opportunity. And yes, uh, yeah. there, there is an opportunity here for storage companies. I just feel like, you know, the weaknesses in Microsoft Windows products or the weaknesses in web servers or badly written code is now such a massive business. And we'll talk about that's a theme right throughout today's show. But it is surprising to me that we're actually at the point where we actually have to have our backups set up in such a way that I can look for corrupted files inside of them so that I know, or malware or detect files that are known to be bad mm-hmm. so I don't restore yes. them. Yeah, so I guess this threat containment service will quarantine individual files or entire snapshots to make sure that you uh, aren't introducing the ransomware when you try to recover a file. Uh, you do have to also use Rubik's Threat Hunt service, which does the malware identification. Uh, snapshots get flagged if they are contained if they contain malware, and then the threat containment system will quarantine them. Um, and it looks like you have to be kind of all in on Rubrik's SaaS offering to get these features. But ransomware is a significant problem. And if this sounds appealing to you, uh, Rubrik is, uh, wants to talk. Yeah, I think it's an interesting use of the uh, the idea that, you know, once upon a time, backups were just this monolith. Yeah. And then we broke them up and then we started tagging them. And now we can actually inspect inside the files in the backup. And you can't obviously do that from near line, so like a tape or a some other sort of offline backup. So yes, it has to be able to be on some sort of permanent storage medium. Interesting though, just just think about how these changes have enabled this sort of thing to be able to be possible. Yeah. All right, links in the show notes if you want to find out more, we'll move on. F5 has released patches for a serious vulnerability in its big IP load balancer. An attacker with network access could, quote, execute arbitrary system commands, create or delete files, or disable services. And the website Bleeping Computer says there are active exploits in the wild, and security researchers have also confirmed that the vulnerability is exploitable. Yeah, uh, easily exploitable, which is why it has a CVSS of Mm. 9.8. My understanding is that there are people out there actively exploiting this all over the place. Some of them are malicious actors taking over F5s and installing malware onto the boxes to give them either to pivot in to the internal infrastructure or to use them to launch DDoS attacks Mm -hmm. or other forms of use them as command and control. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's a a number of people out there who are just RM minus RFing the entire box just for funds. (laughs) Uh, So if you haven't patched it, it's a fair bet that you probably exploit it. And if your F5 goes down, you'll probably, this has actually been going on for a couple of weeks. We didn't, I didn't really mention it last week. But this does continue. F5's had a very, very bad 2022 here. 
This is, I think, the 60th or 70th CVSS listing for F5 code this year, right across the whole suite, across a range of levels and pieces. And it's it's not a good look for F5, who is supposedly a security company, to be continually owned, often in public like this, um, and, and continue to suffer problems on this product. I mean, it doesn't look great. Big IP is F5's flagship product, so uh, a 9.8 severity, uh, yeah, is, is something you need to address right away. Yeah, well, I mean, and they talk about being a security company now, right? Yep. So uh, Nginx turned it into a service mesh, and obviously, you know, it's a security, but F5 is a security appliance, or you can now add threat detection into it. But uh, certainly, and I mean, I looked back over the CVSSs to make sure that I was I was right about this perception, and it, it's certainly true that since... April, they've had about 60 uh, separate CVSS instances, um, but almost none in 2019, 2020, and only a few in 2021. So it sort of suggests that something's gone wrong or the problems have been there for a long time and now people are finding them. I don't know which, but uh, if you've got F5, you might want to be taking a much closer look at what's happening there and be aware that uh, there's certainly a lot of weak points around that product set. All right, links in the show notes if you want to find out more. We'll move on. Uh, Greg, I anticipate some gloating from you uh, based on this next story, so strap in. Uh, the, the startup Subspace, they built a private network targeting high-speed, low-latency applications like gaming, video communications, telemedicine, and, quote, the metaverse. Uh, they are shutting down their global network and business operations. Yeah, so this is uh, not an unusual product to see happening, although what Subspace have done where other vendors doing the similar sort of work has done is go straight into low latency WAN networks. And they did this by partnering with telcos all around the world, uh, which is an odd choice. Uh, and they claim that the internet isn't suitable for real-time applications or experiences. They don't use the word applications. That's me. They call it real-time experiences, which might tell you something. Mm -hmm. Uh, they seem to have a bunch of private backbones. And then what they did is instead of using traditional routing protocols, they implemented their own protocol, which measured the available paths in their network based on latency, packet loss, and jitter. So this leads to a very low latency, high high speed network. And they went off and targeted voice, video, and other low latency customers. And the customers didn't come. So now they're out of business. They haven't even posted on their website, but they did post on LinkedIn of all places. I, saying, I thought that was weird because <laughs> I did go to the website to look for that. And I was like, oh, mm. it, if you just went there, you'd be like, oh, they're still running. But no, they did it yeah. on LinkedIn. That's odd. Yeah, it's bizarre. It's almost as if, you know, somebody was leaving out the door and said, I've got no access to the website. I'll just post something. <laughs> right. on LinkedIn. Oh, we forgot to tell but everybody. Says, yeah. We shut down. It is. <laughs> We regret to announce that effective May 13th, Subspace will be shutting down its global network and business operations, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there are lots of companies in this space building uh, internet bypass to try and improve it. Um, a lot of them use the backbone networks from Google and AWS and Azure, mm -hmm. so they on-ramp the traffic. These guys had a similar sort of system. We've seen a number of SD-WAN partners do this sort of thing. So there's a number of SD-WAN companies who claim that they've got a, an SD-WAN product which is superior because they have a backbone which is better than the internet. Um, right, folks like Kato, Ariaka, yeah. uh, maybe Xperio, others, yeah. The, so this network as a service yeah. model, I think, is out there and has been proven to work. I, it, per, perhaps it's Subspace's approach of that yeah. hot, tight focus on low latency and, and high QoS didn't really matter. Yeah. I think they were trying to charge a premium for the same thing as everybody else and didn't get away with right. it. You know, Cloudflare's in the same business. Most of the CDN companies will head to this space. So... This is my point is that QOS or low latency networking is a bit of a furphy. Yes, there are people out there who want it, but not enough of them to matter. Yeah, it seems like at this point, internet is good enough uh, for most folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as a transport. It could change. It could change, right? The world could change and suddenly something comes around that needs a 10x improvement in bandwidth. 
And so then we get congestion on the network, on the internet and so forth and so on. But there's no signs of that. You know, if I cast around saying over the next 10 years, is there something that's going to 10x the bandwidth? What are we going to, you know, most, we're going to see more as people consume more video in the consumer market. There'll be more machine to machine, but it's not going to be 10x, 100x. It's just going to be an increase, I think. Right. It seems like based on their marketing position, they were kind of banking on this notion of the metaverse uh, with folks doing lots of stuff in in 3D and and virtual uh, life. And that is all vaporware at this point. So they were way too early if they're trying to capitalize on that. I think so. And I think also we've seen the rise of edge compute. So the idea is, is that there's the cloud over there. And then at the edge, if you need low latency, then you put some infrastructure mm-hmm. at the edge and then you do the low latency stuff on-prem right. and then you cooperate or integrate with off-prem cloud to do the rest of it. So if you're going to do your AI and ML, you don't need a low latency network, you just you are network. You do most of the processing locally and so forth. So maybe it was a bet that just didn't work out or whatever, but it's gone. Yeah. I will note that perhaps there was some method to the madness in posting this announcement on LinkedIn because a lot of the responses are like, hey, we're hiring. Hey, we're hiring if you've got folks. So... I guess that's a good thing, yeah. you know. <laughs> People looking to hire their employees. Try to, so try to ease the exit, yeah. yeah. All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Linode. You can cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. You can develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Whether you're developing a personal project or managing larger workloads, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions. Get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit for listeners of Network Break. And you can find all the details at linode.com slash networkbreak. They've got data centers all over the world with the same simple, consistent pricing regardless of location. So you can choose the data center nearest to you. You also get 24 by 7 by 365 human support. There are no tiers or handoff regardless of your plan size. You can choose shared and dedicated compute instances or use your $100 in credit on S3 compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Visit linode.com slash networkbreak and click on the create free account button to get started. Back to the news. Uh, the story feels like it's uh, back to 2018 or 2017. The Canadian government announced that it's banning 5G gear from Huawei and ZTE and that telcos and service providers who have such gear in place must remove it. The government citing national security concerns as the reason for the ban. Uh, and of course, the, the backstop here, of course, is the the politics behind this. Um, there's a lot of questions as to why Canada didn't move in the same direction as the EU. All of the Five Eyes countries, Australia, New Zealand and America, why has it taken so long? And I think there's two reasons which I'll suggest to you. One is that uh, Canada did implement a US extradition warrant and arrested uh, the accountant of Huawei, who was actually the daughter of the of the CEO yes. or something, or daughter of the founder. Yes. And there was a lot of like political backwards and forwards. And I think that's resolved itself recently where the court case has gone through the Canadian courts. And anyway, it's resolved. I'm not going to go into the details here. And I think the second step here is one that's not so obvious is that Canada has been a destination for a lot of Chinese people to invest in housing. So if you have a a significant amount of capital and you can get it out of China, people were buying houses in Canada and that was pumping up the housing market and the local economy. That was foreign, you know, funds. And it's taken a while for that to cool down. The recent geopolitics going around and the downturn in China might make it this uh, politically palatable move now and the Canadian government can make the implementation to exclude Huawei and ZTE, whereas maybe three or four years ago it couldn't. So that's that's my take. That's a that's a perspective 
you're free to make your own perspective. Yeah, I believe that uh, after Canada arrested that uh, Chinese national, Canada, China then arrested two Canadian nationals as a kind of tit for tat. Mm. Okay, you take one of ours, we'll take two of yours. And so that now has all been resolved, which may have mm. uh, helped Canada decide to move forward with coming into alignment. I mean, they're also under a lot of pressure from the United States and other Five Eyes uh, information sharing groups mm. to get on board with this, I think. Yeah, they'll be they'll be denied access to stuff as well because they're not compliant and all that sort of right. stuff. There'll be lots of weird things happening. So, yeah, but there's a backdrop there as to why now not not went you know earlier. Right, yeah. uh, the five G gear has to be out by 2024, and older four G equipment has to be out by 2027. And the government says it is not going to reimburse providers for having to switch. In other words, you should have worked out three years ago that this was <laughs> right. going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Read the tea leaves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should have stopped three years ago and started plans to replace it because it was on the cards. Yes. Yeah. Uh, moving on, cyber insurance premiums rose as much as 92% in 2021. This is according to reporting from the Wall Street Journal, due in part to a series of high profile ransomware attacks. Yeah, I think cyber insurance is an important thing to watch. And I know we keep covering it here, but I keep realizing and then rediscovering over and over again that cyber insurance is a key tool. I was talking to somebody. Uh, the other day, and they said that the reason that they're upgrading their security infrastructure is because the cyber insurance um, auditor came in and said, we won't give you insurance until you fix all of these things. Yes. So <laughs> funnily enough, they're fixing all the things. And, you know, the, all of these old firewalls are getting upgraded and logging is being put in place, like all good common practice. And so this sort of compliance with cyber insurance is actually driving good baseline behavior, if you know what I mean. So... There is an advantage here in that as cyber insurance rises, it also increases the money available to spend on securing unsafe products like Microsoft products, for example. Um, and I also think that in the past, cyber insurance was sort of given away like car insurance. So there's a thing in car insurance called moral hazard. Have you heard of this? Yes. Mm -hmm. right. So the idea is that once you've got car insurance, you drive unsafe. Right. Because you've got car insurance. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and... Uh, so a lot of times we've seen companies say, well, we've got cyber insurance, so we won't worry about the security. We'll get to that next, you know, we'll, we'll sort it out. We'll sort it out. Right, because we're covered, uh, yes. With this, yeah. So what we're seeing now is cyber insurance policies are, are up, you know, 100%, and they'll continue to rise, as this article highlights. Uh, the cost attached to security, they're also being much more selective about what they cover. Yep. So even if you have cyber insurance, um, they're probably not going to cover things like ransomware or you know, if there is a ransomware event, they're only going to cover you over a certain amount or whatever. And the reinsurers are also got involved. So your your cyber insurance company usually backs off the, the portfolio risk to reinsurance. Yep. And uh, we talked about that uh, in previous like shows about 30 or 40 episodes ago. Um, and I think this will have a significant impact on the industry and see a return to fundamental principles in cybersecurity. Yeah, so the article does note that um, the insurance industry is laying out stricter criteria around basic security hygiene measures such as multi-factor authentication and others. I mean, uh, frankly, I am surprised that the insurance organizations went into the space apparently so naively uh, because they were <laughs> suddenly ransomware hit <laughs> and they were like, we're getting killed. Oh my God, what is happening? <laughs> yeah. Well, the way that insurance works is it's based around actuaries and the actuaries make an assessment of the risk and they say, well, we need this much money in this pot of cash and we expect to spend this much, right. leaving this much behind as profit. Uh, and if there was an actuarial fund that predicted that, this, then they would go for it and then they would hand off the reinsurance and that's not worked out profitable. So they keep coming around. It's only for a year. Like it's not like they're committed 
indefinitely. So. No, sure. But uh, yeah, I guess just that whole actuarial model, I think apparently they didn't have a good one to measure the actual no. risk to the people they were insuring. And they have now gotten that yeah. locked down much tighter. Yeah. Yeah. It was certainly um, Lloyd's of London and the reinsurance industry that uh, jacked this up. Sure. Because the reinsurance industry has to pay out the insurance companies who have to pay out customers. Yeah. That's, a, That's right. A yeah. chain of misery. <laughs> All right, moving on with a little bit of space news. The U.S. Defense Department has awarded approximately $1.8 billion in contracts to three suppliers to build a space network of small satellites to facilitate military communications, surveillance, and remote guided weapon systems. Yeah, this was interesting. I hadn't considered that uh, the U.S. government might be doing this. And when this popped up, I went like, oh, yes, this is quite obvious. So the advantage of Starlink in the Ukraine war, which continues has been the advantage that the Russians can't use satellite killers to kill satellites in space so they're because it's this distributed network of satellites. And they also can't block them because you don't know what frequency are on, you don't know where they are in the sky. The antennas can refocus as they move and people can move the antennas around. And so this idea of a distributed you know, microsatellite network to be used for military communications makes sense. And it, obviously the US military is smart enough to know that this is what's been done and so they want to build their own network. It's not going to be on the same scale as the civilian network right. that's basically right. that Starlink currently represents. I believe from the the documents I read about four to five hundred satellites, but obviously secured, used for military purposes. And this particular article that caught my attention was focused on the fact that they were using optical lasers for satellite to satellite data transmission. Huh. So interesting. Uh, uh, to round it out, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and York Space are the first three contractors to win bids. They're uh, down to build 126 satellites for the network. I presume more contracts and more satellites will be uh, handed out shortly. Yeah. Do you want to bet they get launched on SpaceX jet rockets? You never know. It's entirely possible. Yeah. Entirely possible. It is because they're just satellites, right? Just because those companies are not very good at making rockets doesn't mean they're not good at making satellites. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. There will also be military satellites, so all of those companies would be military rated, and I don't think SpaceX is rated for making satellites for the military. So there's all those sorts of considerations here, but you can certainly launch a military satellite on SpaceX from time to time. Yeah, yeah. That, that may be a story we're covering at some point in the future. Yeah. There's a whole, a whole organization called the Space Development Agency in the dot .mil. And uh, interesting one to follow if you're interested in the space. Uh -huh, okay. All right, some financial news. We'll start with Cisco. They announced financial results for their fiscal third quarter of 2022. Revenues were $12.8 flat year over year. Net income was $3 billion, up 6% year over year. Uh, each business unit did report modest revenue growth, except for collaboration, which was down 7%. Yeah, the biggest news here is that Cisco actually predicted that they're going to shrink in the next quarter before things get better. Share price promptly fell off a cliff. I believe it's down 15% mm. as we speak. Mm -hmm. uh, it sort of bounces around between 12 and 15% down. Uh, all the analysts have promptly um, been very concerned about Cisco saying that we're shrinking. Um, the general census is that Cisco saying, we think a lot of our enterprise customers have brought their orders forward. So instead of waiting until the second quarter to put an order or third quarter, all the customers put their orders in now expecting a year-long delivery. Mm -hmm. And so there was a big spike in orders, you know, over the last whatever, and they don't have stock to fulfill them. And that's because of the supply chain. It's not our fault. Please don't hurt us. Uh, and everybody went like, hang on, hang on. You just told us that the supply chain is fine and now it's not. And when you look around, and as we've talked about last week, we talked about Juniper and Arista, they're not having massive problems with supply chain. They're having problems, um, but Arista did not even so much. 
Um, and Arista was able to guide Wall Street materially higher, like they were saying we're going to grow 10%. So now Cisco looks deficient. Its supply chain is not working. And the market's saying, why is Cisco doing so badly compared to everybody else? So it's an interesting situation. Didn't Was it Juniper that we covered that basically ponied up $4 billion, uh, in in cash to make sure that they were going to get supplies through the supply chain? I think it was both Juniper and Arista uh-huh, okay. that said that sort of number, you know, they're committing. I think Cisco didn't do the prepayments. And I think if I had to guess, and this is just an opinion, you know, personal opinion, I'm Cisco, I'm in the purchasing department. I'm a, you know, I need, I, I'm one of your best customers. So you've got to treat me right. Right. And then Arista turns up and says, here's a, you know, here's a couple of billion to make sure I'm getting onto the head of the queue. I'm going to jump the you know line. Who wins yeah. The, yeah. 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 I, I just wonder because now part of the reason that Cisco's having struggles is that it needs to find cash to fix the, and Arista was saying that they're also spending a lot of extra money on expedite fees. Mm-hmm. So that means that's where they say, well, we found some stock, but it's here. We have to pay to hire a jet to fly it in to China to, you know, right, whatever. Right. My sense is Cisco's purchasing, which is, uh, I've said before, is apparently world-class and won awards, might have made a fumble here, and the executive team hasn't allocated cash to lock in committed orders forward. Uh, in the uh, analyst discussion with analysts, he did say, um, we are redesigning up, up to 100 products so that they can start to multi-source components. Hmm. So it does sound like Cisco sort of went all in on a single supplier, and now they're starting to realise that it's a bit late or a bit belatedly that they should have been multi-sourcing their suppliers for a while now. So bad news for Cisco. And I think customers there already know people continually telling us that Cisco's on a 12 to 18 month delivery time mm-hmm. and, and things are pretty dire, but the stock is down 20% year yeah. over year. If you're an employee at Cisco and you're betting on the stocks to give you some money, you might not be very happy at the moment. Uh, one other note uh, from the uh, quarterly review, Cisco earlier stopped doing business in Russia and Belarus because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It says it lost about $200 million in revenue because uh, for this quarter because of that pullout, uh, and but that it's Russia and Belarusian uh, business only amounted to about 1% uh, of its revenue. Yeah, it's almost not significant right. in terms of that overall loss. They're talking about losing $750 million in revenue this quarter, in the next quarter. Hmm. So... Substantial hit. Cisco won't grow in 2022. They'll be earn out at about 58 million, which is roughly the same as last year. That's not what the market's expecting when their competitors are doing much better. All right. Uh, moving on, Palo Alto Networks also reported financial results for their third quarter of 2022. The company had revenues of 1.4 billion, up 29% year over year, but posted a net loss of 73.2 million. Yeah, I think the story here is that Palo Alto was able to do very well. It's a security company. It ships hardware appliances. And you compare that with the previous piece where we talked about Cisco. Palo Alto is able to come up with the revenue 30% year over year, beat the market expectations by 30 million, which is significant at such a small number. Billings grew 40% year over year. Shares have popped up 10%. Now, let me just say that Palo Alto is not the same as Cisco. Palo Alto has an annual revenue sort of around 4.5 billion a year. Cisco has an annual revenue somewhere in the order of 55 billion a year. So The comparisons are unbalanced, but people are drawing them. And I would also note that Palo Alto is not profitable. It's still currently losing about 500 million a year on four. So not exactly the most perfect comparison at all. So obviously they're spending heavily on growth, finding customers, getting more um, is the logical extension there. If they're making a loss, it's probably because they're expending heavily on 
research and development or a big sales push or something like that? Uh, I looked at so the numbers. Perfect. The company spent $544 million on marketing and sales just for this quarter, which is more than the combined spend on research and development and general administrative expenses. Yeah, so they are... Yeah, so they're pushing for growth. Yeah, pushing for growth. So as long as they're growing, the market will be... And, and, <laughs> and it's working. The market is very happy with them, yes. Yeah, and they are growing. And I think increasingly, though, they sell themselves on the stock market as a cyber security play. But I actually see Palo Alto much more of a networking play. Obviously, the SD-WAN and the branch tooling that we've talked about in podcasts on our network is just, there's so much going on there that they're actually becoming more of a networking company as they are with a security company. But that's also this convergence that we've seen between cybersecurity and networking. Right. Or, and networking companies becoming security companies. Yeah. Yeah. Same. I, you can say the same thing about Fortinet, essentially. Yeah. And F5. Look at all the network monitoring companies that are now network security companies. Right. <laughs> mm, you know. <laughs> Add a threat detection and threat feed to our products, and lo, we're a security company. Cyber security. It's where the money is. All right, our last story for today's episode. Uh, it's a story uh, that Greg, you dug up on using algae to generate electricity to power computer chips. Yeah, this is kind of odd. I, know, I wanted to have something a little bit unusual because they're always good fun. Uh, these researchers are using a, a well-known species of blue-green algae to power a microprocessor, and apparently they've managed to do it for a year, and they're continuing using nothing but ambient light and water. So this algae just grows, assuming there's some nutrients in there. So I sort of dug into it because, you know, the, the immediate thing that I think of is that there's two things that are as a natural predator for a chip, for a silicon solution, for a tech solution, it's sun and water. <laughs> it turns out they're using a highly customised microprocessor they developed with ARM Research. So they called it an ultra-efficient ARM Cortex-M0 Plus test chip, built the who built the board and set up the data collection cloud interface Um so it's interesting to think that you could run a CPU, but would it do anything useful in a hostile environment? Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of question, you know? But it is interesting research and, you know, energy consumption is an issue. We do need alternative fuel sources. This does sound like one of those, you know, sort of out in left field research projects, but who knows, maybe something could come of it. Yeah, it is an interesting one. Basically, they're, like most of these things to do with batteries, it's all about the anodes and the electrodes, you know, and the materials that they use. And in this case, uh, it, the research paper talks a lot about the uh, the anode that they've created based around aluminium that creates the current. But it's, it's just an esoteric piece of research. I quite liked it. <laughs> but <laughs> if you, whether you're whether you can build a, you're something useful out of it, eh, I don't know. You never know. know. Yeah, you never know. Um, there's a link in the show notes if you want to go read the paper for yourself. It's uh, research coming out of the University of Cambridge in the UK. All right, that wraps up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for a Tech Bytes conversation with VMware partner SoftChoice on tackling hybrid and multi-cloud deployments. It's coming right up. Welcome to the Tech Bytes podcast. We're talking today about cloud success stories with IT solutions and managed service provider SoftChoice. SoftChoice is a VMware partner, and VMware is our sponsor for this episode. Our guest is Chris Wooden. He is VP Cloud Business Unit at SoftChoice. And Chris, welcome to the podcast. So I mentioned cloud and VMware in the intro. What specifically do customers come to SoftChoice for? So we're a software-focused solutions provider that uh, helps organizations to be more agile and innovative for their people to be engaged, connected, and more creative at work. Now, what that often means is we're moving them to the cloud, helping them build the workplace of tomorrow, and enabling them to make smarter decisions about technology. Of course, VMware is the glue that holds a lot of the strategy and our solution capabilities together. Mm-hmm. Um, and by doing all these things, ultimately, we're helping them to create success for their own customers and for their own people. So one of the things that we saw in the announcement 
about being the VMware partner is here was that multi-cloud was a key part of that technology stack. And it seems to me that multi-cloud is, is quite a diverse sort of a thing. What do you think multi-cloud means for most of your customers? You know, the, the, the way that multi-cloud has been perceived in the past is that it's defined by some very intentional strategy for using multiple public clouds and potentially hybrid cloud and an arranged solution. And the reality is that um, many customers are already multi-cloud without a strategy. Uh, we find many customers uh, are, are in a multi-public cloud scenario because uh, IT moves certain infrastructure services into Azure. Marketing might be using uh, an ISV solution that depends mm -hmm. on consumption in Google Cloud. Developers are building new applications in AWS, and before you know it, IT, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're getting. They're and getting or you acquire a company, and the company uses Google, and. Yeah. And then migration is a substantial challenge and, and so forth. So the reality is multi-cloud is effectively what you're saying. It, we see nearly every one of our customers, which are in mid-market and enterprise segments, already multi-hybrid cloud. Our responsibility is to help identify current state and then develop a more intentional strategy for right. how they're going to use a hybrid multi-cloud strategy uh, to achieve the very unique business outcomes that, that they're pursuing. So given that things like cloud and multi-cloud are, are, are kind of never finished, how do you as a managed service provider when you're working with a customer, what kind of metrics or milestones indicate to you a successful engagement? Traditionally, the types of projects that Softrace and Appears would deliver would be measured based on the fact that we're getting projects done on time, on budget, and with high customer satisfaction scores. Today, though, with these cloud projects, it's th those are obvious uh, requirements. It's much more now about having some measurable impact on the business. And that is typically how we're measuring our success. Was this mm. project successful in enabling the customer to do something for their own customers or for their productivity or efficiency that can be measured in dollars and cents impact? Okay, so some kind of financial metric or some kind of internal productivity metric? Yeah. Yeah, we, we actually do, you know, measure, uh, you know, the most common examples uh, are, are, you know, cost avoidance by becoming more efficient in, uh, you know, how infrastructure services are being used. And we see that a lot in VMware on cloud. But, you know, thinking about tools like VMware Tanzu, uh, you can really start to quantify the business value of building modern applications and the impact mm. that that's actually having on the customer's revenues. All right, so let's uh, you know make this more concrete. We'll bring in a customer story, and I guess one of the customers you're working with, they're a professional baseball team here in the United States. I guess my first question is, what does a baseball team need with public cloud? This particular baseball team was solving for a very real business problem, which was a bad fan experience. Essentially, what was happening is these fans would show up to the ballpark, they would be provided the seat assigned on their ticket, and that was about it. And they'd watch the game. The reality is that. Um, you know, you need to create a much richer experience in today's environment. And for them, what that meant was giving each attendee far more um, experience and control of their experience from their seat through their mobile phone. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to design uh, modern applications that could be used to order concessions directly to their seats uh, to watch uh, replays from their seat in real time. Yeah. Uh, if you just or, missed the play, you want to see the replay, you want to see the scores, maybe you want to see the batter statistics, like, you know, how, how often does this person hit a home run or something like that? Exactly. And imagine, you know, if, if the, the ball club could know what you're doing with that experience mm -hmm. and then cater more experiences to your behavior. 
And so this is what they knew would create a modern fan experience. The problem is that the way that, you know, this ball club, like most organizations developed applications is that um, they, they couldn't do it nearly quickly enough mm-hmm. or with the range of capabilities that are necessary to unleash that experience. And for them, it required them to build these modern applications in the cloud. In this case, they did it with Azure, where they're using microservices in the Azure service fabric to enable these applications to do things never before possible. Now, the problem for this particular ball club is that it's one thing to build the application in the public cloud, but then hosting it and running it to 60,000 fans Mm. in a very small location Mm -hmm. is a major technical barrier. There's really no way to get around that without hosting the application in this scenario, locally from the ball club. And this is one of the things that VMware on cloud or in in this specific uh, solution scenario, Azure VMware services enabled, enables the customer to build the applications in the public cloud and then move them to their new on-premise private cloud environment and run them locally for maximum performance and uh, and availability. And and now that really makes sense to me because you don't know when you're developing that solution, you can't say how much compute you need or how much storage or what services you need. And so going into the public cloud allows you to be much more flexible about the, the development cycle and find what's needed. And then when you're ready, come back on premise to get the costs into a, a model that your business might be more happy with. That's right. And that's, that's why this particular customer, the way that they describe the ultimate outcome of the solution is what they call agility. Hmm. It's their ability to constantly you know, iterate on the application, launch new services around it uh, because they're in the public cloud and they can, they can move on a dime. And, and here's the best part, guys. Um, you would think that to do this, you're hiring an entirely new staff. Well, what VMware on cloud enabled them to do is actually use a lot of the people that were already on staff who had built their original VMware environment and now port it into VMware on cloud and, 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 and automate a lot of the control and management of the environment so that they could really focus their efforts on what they want to do, which is application development and and constant iteration. This is not something you hear very often. People aren't moving to the VMware on cloud. In this case, they're developing on the VMware cloud with the intention of bringing it back into the data center once you have a grip on what you need. So you're using the same deployment tools, the same containers, the same VMs, the same networking, the same storage. So it's actually a much more seamless um, repurposing of the technology. Is that what we hear? Yeah, it, that's true. And that's why I like this example is I think it's, mm-hmm. it's you know, um, a really advanced example of how VMware on cloud can be used in a true hybrid public cloud arrangement uh, mm-hmm. to meet really unique business requirements. Now, the reality is most of our customers that are doing VMware on cloud aren't that advanced yet. What they're really doing is using VMware on cloud to accelerate the migration of their traditional uh, workloads and on-premise environment into the public cloud and then starting, you know, a long-term modernization journey once they're in public cloud. In this specific example, are is the baseball team also leveraging backend services in the public cloud for things like, you know, analytics and data crunching? I, I assume that would be a good use case for this hybrid model. That's exactly what they're doing. Yeah. And, and you know, they can only use those microservices in the Azure service fabric when the application is built in the public cloud. Right. Um, and so that was one of the main reasons that they wanted to get the application development process into the public cloud so that they can take advantage of those services and not have to build them themselves. 
so they can access the cloud for development for new services. But when it comes down to game day, when you need a local instance of that app for performance, they can bring it down into their private cloud, run it for game day, and then if changes need to be made or whatever, back to the public cloud. Is that the idea? Exactly. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's a really unique case for hybrid cloud. Yeah. So, you know, I could see an MSP like SoftChoice partnering up with Azure, for example, or AWS. Why then VMware as a partner for the cloud? Well, um, what we found is that uh, customers are really struggling with a couple things when they start to get into, um, let alone a single public cloud uh, mm. environment, um, but a multi-cloud environment. And the first is their ability to migrate the environment into the public cloud. Mm. Um, and then the second is how to manage it once it's there. Um, I'll give you an example of another customer who used VMware and cloud to solve this problem. They're a hedge fund in New York that we had been working with for about six months to move them into AWS so that they could use um, uh, some extraordinary horsepower for their analytics, mm -hmm. given you know the heavy analytics a hedge fund does. And uh, we had been building the migration plan with their AWS leader inside this customer organization. And then, of course, the AWS leader got hired away. And the project <laughs> came to a complete stop. And uh, there was a few weeks where the customer assumed they would go out and replace this individual. And they came to the reality that they're just not going to be able to do that. That the, the talent is way too scarce, way too competitive. They're, they're never going to be able to develop the level of AWS cloud native expertise that they would need to complete this project. And that's when we pushed back and said, you know, what if you leverage the skills that you already have, processes, the, the tools that you already have, having built and managed this environment on VMware, and you use mm. VMware mm. to manage the migration into the public cloud, in this case, using VMC on AWS. And that's exactly what we did. Mm. And it got the project right back on track, accelerated the migration into AWS, keeping a lot of the people and processes they'd already put in place around uh, the infrastructure. And now that they're in the public cloud quickly, now they can start the process of modernizing more efficiently uh, mm. which may include using AWS native services or using VMware uh, app modernization tools like Tanzu. Mm. So you get the best of both worlds. You get all the choices. Exactly. Sometimes it's too many choices, but that's a better problem than saying, I don't know what to do. I, I think that's an interesting point about talent, because if you've already got VMware expertise, for example, being able to put that into public cloud, then, you know, you can address that issue of, you know, we, we don't necessarily have the capability to hire an AWS expert or an Azure expert and so on. Uh, Chris, I want to ask you, how do you see the cloud market developing? What's the appetite for sort of lift and shift versus embracing containers and Kubernetes and sort of microservices and modern application development? I would say that uh, the end goal all of our customers have is using cloud to uh, modernize the development um, of applications using containers to do that. The challenge is that for many of our customers, it will take many years to mm -hmm. modernize and then migrate at the same time all these applications, and they want the benefit of cloud now, whether it's to improve performance or availability or most commonly just the economics running the environment in the public cloud and, and being able to eliminate uh, colo contracts and other on-site operational resources. And so 
Where we see VMware on cloud really fitting in right now is accelerating every customer's ambition to move more of the environment into public cloud and then start the process of modernizing applications and data in the appropriate sequence. Mm. One of the really unique advantages I think that VMware is, is seizing is you know, if they're responsible for migrating the customer's environment into public cloud through VMware on cloud, uh, it, now and being able to embed application modernization tools like Tanzu and accelerating the adoption of DevOps and FinOps yeah. with tools like Cloud Health, uh, it's, they're, they're really <laughs> well positioned. Right, and I think also the fact that it straddles the on and the off-prem, because I think exactly. the, the, the multi-cloud is here to stay for the foreseeable future. And if you put your tooling into the public cloud, you still need to monitor that and have visibility and track billing and asset management and security tooling. And moving to VMware on cloud means you get, you know, the networking capabilities, you get the same security profile posture, and you might choose some other tools in the cloud that you're using, you know, services are here and there, but you want to have the bulk of your tooling in one operational control, I think. That's exactly right. And, and you know, you touch on a really important point. The way we talk about public cloud, sometimes it's this sense of inevitability that everything is going to end there and private cloud is gone. That's not true. Like we are mm. still seeing customers like the professional ball club we just talked about mm -hmm. uh, make really intentional decisions to invest in the development of private cloud uh, locally managed infrastructure right. where the use case demands it. Um, mm. And that's not going to stop. And so we are always going to be in this hybrid world. And, and to your point, the problem is a lot of the tools that you use to manage public cloud environments are different than the tools that customers are using for private cloud environments. And that's not what customers want. Yeah. They want and the compatibility is an issue, mapping the operational compatibility of this to that and, and, and putting security postures together and performance goals and SLAs and RPOs and all that. It, it, it really it, becomes a exactly. Yeah, it does. Yeah, and exactly, and that's that's why I, I think when you look back on the acquisitions that VMware's made, as well as the investments they've made in some, you know, native capability, is to solve exactly this issue. Is that single uh, layer to manage a private and public cloud environment, and mm -hmm. all the, you know, application and data management and modernization tasks that sit on top of it. Mm -hmm. Well, that does wrap up our time. Uh, thank you, Chris, for joining us. Uh, and thanks to SoftChoice, uh, VMware Partner of the Year for joining us. And thanks to VMware for being a sponsor. Uh, we'll have links in the show notes with more details about SoftChoice and VMware. Uh, if you liked this episode, you can find many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at PacketPushers. Find us on LinkedIn, listen to us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>